the reading from today is from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and the poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Father, we, we thank you for your, your word and how it guides and corrects and reproves us. I pray that we would be obedient to it and that we would listen to the conviction of your spirit in the way in which it calls us to change our lives, that we may more glorify you. I pray for Derek as he preaches this message. May your spirit work through him and into our hearts. May you be magnified in this time. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Uh, sorry, I forgot that I needed a, one of these things until like 30 seconds ago. So just a little setup. Um, my name is Derek, as uh, Dan sort of suggested there. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Aletheia. Um, thank you for coming out and joining us today. This is going to be a whole heck of a lot of fun. I hope you're prepared. Um, <clears throat> this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at the relationship between work and rest. Uh, now, I think it's pretty safe to say that, uh, generally speaking, in our culture, we will uh, find ourselves to be work-averse and really big fans of rest, right? Um, I think uh, maybe a point to this, to support this idea, is that for less than the cost of a new laptop, you could instead buy a robot that will vacuum your floors. I know this because I have one. His name is Killbot, and he sleeps next to my bed. Uh, but, but our dislike for work goes a little bit deeper than just inventing robots to do work for us uh, and also eventually bring about our demise. Um, our, our dislike for work is sort of inbred culturally. So you look at somebody like uh, or a culture like the ancient Greeks, they actually believed that work was a curse unleashed on humanity uh, when Pandora's box was opened up. Um, so and among all of the other things, disease, death, famine, etc., work. Um, so work was, uh, was aberrant to them. In fact, um, the ancient Greeks believed that the, the only acceptable work was to think. So they didn't do experimentation. They didn't want to till the field. They, didn't want, they hired people to do that, or they enslaved people to do that, right? Um, we haven't gotten much better in modern-day society. When you go into an office or you go into any workplace setting, there's some version of this conversation that happens regularly, right? You clock in on Monday, and at least in my experience, before I've had my first sip of coffee, someone will say to me, ugh, oh, Monday. Weekend wasn't long enough. Like, it's, it's the same length pretty much like every time. How are you surprised by this? Like, plan your life better. Or during the week, people will talk about, like, Wednesday. Ugh, oh, we're almost to Friday. We're halfway there. So we vilify Mondays, the symbolic start of work, and we worship Fridays, uh, the, the release from our bondage, right? Uh, on the... On the extreme of that, like keeping this going, if you, if you think about what our general plan is for life, what is it? We work hard, and then eventually what? 
you retire. You stop working and finally start enjoying life, right? Because you're done with that work stuff and you can go on with, you know, the traveling and the golfing and the whatever you wanted to do uh, that, that work has really been keeping you from. On the other hand, there are those of us that will attend to our work with zeal, right? Uh, I'm, I'm one of these folks. If it wasn't for the fact that I have a family at home that is, you know, my priority, uh, on this earth, then I would easily work 60 or 70 hours a week. Uh, my wife can attest to this. Um, it's very easy for me to slip into the groove at work and, and even work through lunch. I will come home and realize as I'm pulling the driveway, I am starving, but I got that spreadsheet done, right? Um, <laughs> I have to set boundaries for myself so that when I come home, I stop working. Um, I, I put my phone on the counter in the kitchen and it's on vibrate. So if you've ever tried to call me or text me after like 6 or 6.30 and not gotten a response until the next day or the day after, that's why. Um, I keep my phone away from me when I go home because I still get emails and texts and phone calls from the office. Uh, Saturdays, we have, <clears throat> we have set aside Saturdays in our household as our Sabbath. Um, I don't do anything on Saturdays that is not with my family um, or focused on my family. And I've told my boss as much. And, and thankfully, she respects that and doesn't give me any uh, work to do on Saturdays. Sundays, though, probably. Um, but are either of these relationships with work right? Or are they healthy? What is work to you? What should work be for you? In order to even begin addressing this question, I think it's important <clears throat> to consider what Scripture teaches. The Bible has a lot to say about work. Those of us who are followers of Christ have to adopt a biblical way of thinking. When we think about this question, what is work to us, the first filter it goes through should not be, what are our life goals? What do I want my vacation to look like this year? What do I want my title and salary to be? Our first question as believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, should be, how does the Bible inform my thinking on this? How does my faith impact the way I go about my work? How does the gospel transform my work from what it was or what it is for others to what it should be for me as, uh, as an adopted son or daughter of, of God? My goal this morning is not to answer all of these questions for you. Uh, my goal is to give you some basic principles. I think there's three foundational, uh, as elemental of a principle as I can get, um, three basic concepts found in the Bible that deal with work. Number one, work is a gift. Number two, work has a purpose. And number three, work is not sufficient. Also, I'm going to be drinking a lot of water because I take Adderall now. It's just like cottonmouth all the time. Um, we're going to discuss these three things on the backdrop of Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. So let's start off, uh, let's go back to Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 for a second. Go to the ant, O sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. So the sluggard is revealed in Proverbs as sort of the archetype of laziness. He's mentioned about 10 unique times throughout the whole book, starting with his introduction here in Proverbs 6, where he's instructed to go and uh, learn something from an insect. Um, 
this is sort of a high point for the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. Um, if you are ever invited to go and look at a lesser creature in order to be better, then that is not a compliment. All right, let's just get that out of the way. But here's what else the Bible says about the sluggard in Proverbs. Proverbs 10 says that he's like vinegar to the, to the teeth and smoke in the eyes to people who depend on him because he's unreliable. Proverbs 15 tells us that the way of the sluggard is covered in thorns because his lack of work makes his life difficult, not easier. Proverbs 19 says the sluggard is so lazy, and this is probably one of my favorite descriptors of the sluggard. He's so lazy that when he reaches his hand out to take food from a dish, he just leaves it there because that was too much effort to bring it back to his mouth. Proverbs 26 tells us that the sluggard is stuck to his bed like a door on its hinges. He just flips back and forth and never really gets out. By contrast, the the ant works diligently to collect its food. It doesn't have to be told what to do. It just does it. The sluggard, a human being who ostensibly has, uh, has a higher intellect and more capable faculties than the ant, doesn't lift a finger to provide for himself with someone telling him to get moving. The sluggard finds no value in work, no matter what it provides. He's not worried about bread and food for the summer. He's worried about his rest right now. Simply put, the sluggard is neglecting his design and therefore missing out on the gift God offers in work. The Bible actually says that work is part of our design. The, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, right? So God goes through the act of creation, and, and what does he say after he finishes making a thing? It's good. It's good. It's good. And while things are still good, he creates Adam. And before Adam is given Eve, before sin enters the world, I'm not casually linking those two things together. I'm just saying order of operations. God sets Adam up and says, work. He says, I want you to name all the animals in creation. You been to a zoo lately? It's tough stuff. I can't name them, and the names are on the plaques in front of them. But that was the task God gave Adam, to work. Sin did not make work. Sin made work hard. Sin did not make work. Sin made work hard. And, and work wasn't given to us so that God didn't have to work anymore. Uh, there, there's an ancient religious creation story. I can't remember the, the name of the religion, but it basically says that um, the, the gods created everything, and then they looked around and went, oh, God, this is going to be a lot of work. Uh, humans. <laughs> but that's not why God gave us work. God gave us work as part of our design. We are designed as image bearers of God. God says, let's let's make man in our image, which means that we have certain traits in common with our creator. Things like relationships, affection, creation, the ability to create, and the drive for work. God worked six days, rested. God gave us work and said, be my image bearers in creation. Carry on the work of stewarding this gift that I've given you. The author of Ecclesiastes, um, which, by the way, if you ever go through like a, a, 
if you're like a, a if you're ever an emotional teenager, like I was at one point, um, Ecclesiastes is the book for you. The author of Ecclesiastes uh, sets up this character called the the preacher or the teacher or the philosopher, depending on your your translation, and and this. This character, uh, who, who either is Solomon or was based on Solomon, says, I've tried everything. I've tried to find meaning through knowledge to get smarter. I've tried to find uh, meaning through pleasure to just make life about enjoying as much of it as I can. And I've tried to make life meaningful. I've tried to find value for my soul through work. And what does he say as he looks back on this in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes? He says, what I found is all of it's meaningless. And yet, he still says, as he looks back on this, in Ecclesiastes 3, 12 through 13, he says, I perceived that there is nothing better for people, for them, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. God has given us work in order that we might find pleasure, a pleasure that comes from operating within our design. We were made to work, and through work, uh, sorry, and though work was broken by sin, God still affords us the chance to take pleasure in our toil. You're going to have rough days. You're going to have terrible days. You're going to have dark, crushing days. And yet... God has given us the gift of work so that by operating in our design, we can find pleasure. But it seems a sluggard only sees vanity when he considers work. Picking up again in uh, Proverbs 6, at verse, uh, verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little, sl- a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard isn't concerned with future poverty or want. His only concern is his present. How long are you going to lie there? He's asked, and the implied response is, eh, a little longer. In the end, his inaction leaves him vulnerable. Poverty sneaks in like a thief. Right, like a um, like a like a cat burglar. And, uh, you ever seen To Catch a Thief? Great movie. Creeps in, you're never seen. Poverty sneaks up on you and takes what you have. Want threatens your life, like an armed man. What, when he says want, he doesn't mean want of a better couch or want of a new TV. What he means is hunger. Starvation literally will threaten your life. I think it's important to understand, though, that the Bible isn't saying that poverty is only ever the result of someone not working. The Bible is not telling us, through this anecdote of the sluggard, that poverty is only ever the result of people not working. In fact, while the Bible shows clear contempt for the sluggard in every reference of him in the book of Proverbs, the Bible has nothing but compassion for people who are poor and impoverished, 
who are hurting and oppressed. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And then, excuse me, when you look at God's law, Time and again, as God talks about work, as God talks about how the nation should interact with its people and how neighbors should interact with one another, what does he say to the poor? What does he say to the powerless and to the oppressed? He says, I am your portion. I am your reward. You may not have everything you want in this life, but you have me. And because I am God, this is how people should treat you. And when they oppress you, I will avenge you. That's what happens in in, uh, Exodus when God appears to Moses and calls him to go and free his people. He says to Moses, I have heard of their oppression and I am going to do something about it. And so he moves through Egypt, brings the plagues to punish Pharaoh and rescues his people out of slavery rescues them out of oppression. Jumping forward, when God moves to act on behalf of all of us who are spiritually oppressed, who are enslaved to sin, who are, who are in our souls impoverished because we're outside of our design, we're, we're crushed under the weight of sin, what does he do? He sends his son, who comes not as a warrior, who can just fight his way through everything, not as a king who can come and just change the way government operates. He comes as a baby born in a stable. My family didn't come from money, but I was not born in a barn. Jesus was. And and when Jesus grew up, he was a carpenter. He worked hard. He was a laborer. He wasn't a thinker. He wasn't a philosopher. He was blue-collar. And later in his life, as he goes about his ministry, what do we know of Jesus? He's so poor that when he wants to talk about whether or not somebody should pay the head tax, he has to ask someone to give him the smallest denomination of Roman coin. He says that the birds have their nests and the foxes have their dens, but the, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless. So to the poor and impoverished, to the oppressed and the hurt and the broken, God doesn't just say, I've got your back. God says, I know what it's like. I have been there. He can identify with you. But the sluggard, again, he's this archetypal character of laziness. He's the epitome of a lazy person. For, for all intents and purposes, the sluggard is a two-dimensional character. There are no underlying issues. We know everything there is to know about the sluggard because he's a fictional character. So we can't sit back and go, oh, well, well, well maybe the reason he's like that is because uh, this happened or this happened. No, no, no. It tells us what we need to know. He won't lift a finger to help himself. He won't get out of bed. He, his primary aim in life is to put off all responsibility, to put off all work, all effort, to be unencumbered so that he can, in his mind, live a free life. He just doesn't care about future poverty and want because all he cares about is right now, and right now he wants to take it easy. His poverty, his poverty, is the result of his sin, the sin of laziness. 
because the sluggard has forgotten his design. He's like, he is like us, right? Every human being is an image bearer. And if God has created us in his image, that means that not only do we work, but there's a larger implication for the fact that we were designed in God's image. And that is that our chief purpose in life is to bring glory to God, to worship God, to love God, to pursue God in all we do. Even our work serves the purpose of bringing God glory, but I, but I fear we don't think about it in these terms. I, I, I really think that the, this concept of how faith and work should interact and what the Christian uh, employee should look like, how we should go about our work as believers, is fairly poorly understood. Because I think we oftentimes put an invisible dividing line between two types of work. What are they, right? There's, there's the ministry, the spiritual work of God, and there's, what do we call it? Secular. Secular jobs. I have a secular job because I work in human resources, right? Kevin has the higher calling because he's a full-time paid pastor. But that's not what the Bible says. The purpose of our work is to glorify God. Here's how I know this. Let's, let's look again at what the scripture says. The preamble of God's law in the Old Testament, before God starts handing out all of his commands, he leads with this. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. This separated Israel from all other nations around them at this point. They had one God who was sovereign over all things. When they wanted it to rain, they didn't pray to the God of the clouds. When they wanted the sun to come up or they wanted to grow their crops, they didn't pray to a different deity to achieve all these things. They had one God. And that one God said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. Do you know what people did for a living in ancient Israel? There were farmers, some were soldiers. There were blacksmiths and artisans. There were healers. There, there were mothers who stayed at home to, to manage the household and raise the family, which we, we can see elsewhere in, in uh, Proverbs, leads to the increasing wealth of the home. There was only one group of people in all of Israel that were specifically called to be workers in the temple, to have spiritual jobs. Everyone else did something else, and yet God calls them to love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their might. Therefore, the work they did was part of how they loved God. This means that to love the Lord your God with all your might, our minds dwell on him. Our souls ought to rejoice in him, and our hands ought to labor for him through our vocation. 
God's command to love him with all our might isn't reserved for the strictly spiritual work. There is no divide between sacred and secular. There is no divide between sacred and secular. Where you go, you go as an image bearer of God, designed to worship God in all you do, including your work. That means that all work that isn't based on sin or designed to increase or incite debauchery can glorify God when it's done well. Doesn't matter what your job is, whether it pays or how much it pays, or even if it pays at all. Doesn't matter if you like your job. If you feel like you are in the right position, that it lines up with your career, this is where you saw your life going, or not. I studied how to run governments. I work in human resources. Before that, I worked in retail. I have yet to see that perfect alignment with where I thought I was going to be and where I am. But I am where I am. It's like a John Madden quote, right? Um, Your job is honoring the calling God has placed on you to be his image bearer. Cleaning toilets? Absolutely. Dealing drugs? No. Studying diligently in college? Absolutely. Writing and directing The Last Jedi? Jury's out. But here's another layer for you to consider. Our work serves not only to glorify God, but also to minister to the needs of creation, especially our fellow image bearers. This is especially true for those of us in this room who call ourselves Christians. Because God has designed work. And he's given a purpose. It glorifies him. It meets the needs of others. Leviticus 19 shows us that God used the work of the field and vineyard owners to provide for people in poverty. He says at the very beginning of uh, Leviticus uh, 19, well, maybe it's like verse 20 or something. He says to the field owners, he says, when you go to harvest the field that you've planted, you are not allowed to harvest up to the edges. You're supposed to leave the outer rows. And when you take your grain in, you're not allowed to go back and pick up what you dropped. Why? Because that is for people who are poor. Widows, folks who are impoverished, who can't make ends meet. People who are traveling through your land and need something to eat. You leave that for them because I am your God. And through that, I will provide for them. He says the same thing to to vineyard owners. Don't strip your vines bare. Leave some so that people can go behind and provide for themselves through your work because that's how I'm going to care for them. David echoes this in Psalm 145 where he observes, the eyes of all look to you and you give them food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. If you had breakfast here this morning, or if you ate breakfast at all. You should eat breakfast. It's a very important meal. The meal here was first produced, right? So on the, on the far end of the beginning spectrum, there's uh, grains were uh, planted and harvested. Eggs were collected from hens. Hens, right? Yeah, hens. Um, it was shipped to a distributor. The distributor then sent it to a store 
the store stocked it, someone put it on the shelf, and then someone rang it up for a volunteer from this church to pick it up, bring it here, and then prepare all that stuff so you could eat it. There are so many jobs that people have from the point of production to the point of consumption for even something as simple as a bowl of cereal. That's what David is talking about. God provides for us through work, even though sin has made work hard. God still redeems it. Even the worst scenario you can imagine in, in work, hating your job, feeling like your boss doesn't respect you, working long hours, having to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. I know plenty of people like that who have had to work two and three jobs just to be able to pay the bills. And it's not because they were frivolous with their money at some point in their life. It's just where they are. Even that terrible, back-breaking, suffering work, God redeems because through it, it's, it provides. You don't have to spiritualize your job in order to bring glory to God. My friend Nate is here today, uh, which is really odd because I had a reference to him in my sermon, and so here it is. Um, I didn't expect him to be here. He lives in Kentucky now, so, you know. Um, Nate's primary driver in every situation he's in is to get to a point where he can authentically pray for and love on people. He is constantly prepared, cocked and loaded, to pull the gospel out and evangelize anyone who comes in contact with him. It is such a core part of his being that it just happens. But you don't have to be Nate in order to bring glory to God in your work. You bring glory to God in your work just simply by having a a ministry of competence. Do your job well. The Christian way to work it is not better than anyone else's way to work, right? Uh, I heard, I think it was uh, Tim Keller said that, you know, like the, um, the atheist doctor or the atheist scientist is not more or less equipped to be a scientist or a doctor than the Christian. Just because you're a believer doesn't make you great at your job. What it makes you is responsible to do your job to the best of your ability. And as you're doing that, serve the work. Right? I mean, and you work in a profession, you will have a job wherein the better you do your role, the better your job performs, the better your employer does, the more your coworkers can trust you. But I can promise you this, if you go into your job and, and your number one concern is to share the gospel, praise God. Like I, I would never tell you to not do that. If you feel like God has said that you are going to the workplace for the sole purpose of preaching the gospel, do it. Don't don't ignore the Spirit. But if that's your drive and you are terrible as an employee, nobody cares about your faith. No one will listen to you if your lack of effort, if your lack of diligence, if your lack of caring for your job, however terrible it is, means that they have to work harder. They have to do more. The company's not as profitable. The office isn't as well respected. You have to put yourself in a position 
You have to earn the position of being able to speak about your faith in a way that people will listen to you in the workplace. If you don't do your job well, if you don't undertake a ministry of competence, you will never get there. You're just not. But still, for all the good that comes from work, work is not sufficient. Let's consider the sluggard one more time. Because there's another layer to this character that I think we can all identify with, regardless of what our specific relationship is to work or to rest. He longs for rest. I don't mean sleeping in his bed. That's how it works itself out for him. But what he really longs for is a deep sense of rest. Shalom, this peace, right? He longs for rest that he's never going to find, no matter how hard he pushes away from work. That's why he's stuck to his bed like a door on its hinges. Because he thinks this is the path. If I, if, I can just, if I can just not work today, then finally I'm going to feel like the world is right. Finally I'm going to feel like I matter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not have these expectations on me. I'm not going to have these restrictions. I'm not going to have someone telling me what to do. I'm just going to finally exist the way I was meant to exist. But what it actually leads to is something that looks a lot like depression. He's just flipping back and forth in his bed. He makes up lies to not go out and work. It says in Proverbs 20 that he says, there's lions in the street. When there's no lions in the street, he doesn't want to leave his house. The thing is, though, the sluggard does need rest. We all do. But it's not the kind of rest he thinks he needs. See, his problem doesn't begin with laziness. That's the symptom. I would argue that probably, if not 100% of the time, at least 99% of the time, the outward sin is not the problem. The outward sin is the symptom. Which is why when we try to deal with our sin... We, we, when we're attacking these symptoms, when we say, oh, well, gosh, I'm just feeling really lazy. I just need to work harder. Working harder is not going to give this guy rest because it's only putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, right? We've talked about this before, the, the danger of treating the fever and not the virus. The, the sluggard doesn't suffer from a, a sin, from a... He doesn't suffer from a condition of the hands. He suffers from a condition of the soul. Proverbs 13.4 gives us this insight. It says, The soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing. The Hebrew word that's translated as soul here is the same word used to describe God breathing the breath of life into Adam. When Adam was formed, after he'd been designed, he was given life. He was given his soul through the lungs of God. In essence, what we see here is that the sluggard's humanity is broken. His design 
is broken. What should be life-giving is instead life-threatening. The proper term for this condition is not laziness. Laziness is too narrow, right? Because if, if, we, if we said that all this was was laziness, and the point of the sermon is go and work harder so you can finally be a human being. It just looks like laziness in the sluggard. The, the real issue that the sluggard suffers from is something called acedia. A-C-E-D-I-A, if you're taking notes, acedia. Which, which comes from an ancient Greek word for neglect. Dorothy Sayers, who's an early 20th century English writer, wrote this of Asadia in her book, uh, Creed or Chaos, where she's going through and, and sort of reading the Christian creed and trying to figure out what are the Apostles' Creed, what, what's here? She says of Asadia, it is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. Because of sin, we are all born with the poison of acedia in our souls. Instead of finding purpose with our first breath, like Adam did before the fall, post-fall, post-sin entering the world, we are all born with a broken purpose. Our design, though it's still good, we can't attain it because sin has broken all of creation. And so instead of waking up, taking our first breath, knowing exactly what we're here to do and being able to pursue it with zeal, what happens? We spend our entire life trying to find out why we matter. We spend our entire life figuring out, what am I supposed to do? Some of us spend tens of thousands of dollars going to college under the promise, not that we're going to find the job that we want, not our dream job, but that we will somehow in that, for all of that investment, finally find our purpose. And when we declare a major, that's the moment we find our purpose. And then the second time, we change our major. That's our purpose. And the third time, that's our purpose. And we graduate and take our first job. That's our purpose. We're clinging to anything in this dark world that will make us feel like we matter because our souls are empty. It's better described not as laziness, not of any of the other sins, but maybe as, maybe as gluttony. Because for want of something of substance, we just cram everything we possibly can into that void of our souls. And in the end, what we have is more nothing. Our souls crave nothing, and we give them nothing. In the end, we're left with nothing. Our souls feel the desire for comfort, so we consume relaxation until we're satisfied. Our souls yearn for intimacy, so we consume sex and sensuality until we're satisfied. Our souls burn to feel glory, so we work our fingers to the bone at school or in our careers until finally we're satisfied. Our souls feel worthless, and we turn to people and causes and success and on and on and on, one thing after another. It doesn't matter how old you are. Look at your life. 
at this point? Have any of the things you've tried to make you feel satisfied really done the trick for longer than like a minute? An empty soul consumes anything and everything, but it's never filled. This is partially what drives me to work the way that I work. Like I sense that underneath the surface, that, that desire to, to derive my value from something other than the God who made me, who gave me his image, who put me in the workplace to love him with all my might. Even as much as I know that and, and, and force myself into that through these, uh, these checks and balances on my life, I still feel this weird, I don't know, it's like a buzzing in the back of my brain when I'm, when I'm doing something at work, when I'm working, I'm working on a project right now um, that, that just launched at the beginning of this month. And I keep thinking to myself, that if this goes well enough, then my reputation will grow well enough in my office that I will finally be respected the way that I want to be respected. I still struggle with that, and I have been thinking about the topic of faith and work for the better part of the last six or seven years through every job I've had that I hated, through every long hour, every long week. I've been wrestling with this topic head on, and I still feel that urge. It's a monster. We work to put food on the table. We work to pay our bills. We work to serve our community, to be a steward of the creation that God has given us. But there's no scenario wherein work will truly satisfy your longing for rest. If you think work is worthless or just a distraction from what really matters, avoiding it's not going to give you satisfaction. If you think work defines the value of your life, there's no amount of work that will make you feel like your value is secure. Get that? Like that that's a very specific phrasing. You will never feel like your value is secure. You might find it for a moment, but then you've got to fight to keep it because the way you've earned it is through your work. So you've got to work harder and harder and harder to keep your value up. The purpose of work that we often miss is that it isn't to make you worthy, whether you run from it or you dive head first. The purpose of work is to glorify God. Here's what the Bible has to offer us. God gave Sabbath, right? So we, we, we all sort of like have a basic understanding of Sabbath. Work six days, but not the seventh. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God who labored for six days and rested for one. Israel, keep the Sabbath holy. He gives it to us in part so that we could mimic his rhythm of work, so that we don't give in to the temptation to work all the time, so that we can sit back and rest in the fact that God is sovereign. But Sabbath Rest is more than a proper rhythm. It's an invitation to rest in God. 
when Genesis says that on the seventh day, God rested, that was true rest. True rest. We've never felt that. We might come close, but we've never felt that. God gives us the Sabbath, gives the Sabbath to Israel in part to to invite them to rest in him. He knows what that looks like. Rest in him. Rest in his work. Only when our souls rest in God are they truly fulfilled. It's God who provides. You open up your hand for the good of every living thing. It's God who provides. It's God who satisfies. Adam felt true rest, not because of his work, but because he had a relationship with his creator until he broke it. When Adam sinned, the worst effect wasn't that work became difficult. You get that, right? Like when, when Adam sinned, when sin entered the world, the worst effect was not that you might be salaried at 40 hours, but you work 70. It wasn't that you have to work three jobs just to pay your light bill. It wasn't that, that folks became homeless. The worst thing that happened as a result of sin entering the world was that our relationship with God was shattered, irreparably damaged. There's nothing we can do to repair it. All of us, all of our lives are spent looking for meaning, looking for purpose in the hopes that when we find it, we'll find rest. We're looking for rest like the sluggard who asks for a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. All of us in this room share that with the sluggard. We look everywhere for rest that we just know that we'll feel if we can finally fill that emptiness in our souls. But God has made a way for us to discover this rest. Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth for the sole purpose of repairing our broken relationship with God. To to take away our sins so that we once again can experience rest in our souls. When we see Jesus as the rest our souls truly crave, then things are changed. And here's what Jesus says about this in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not a nap, not a lack of work, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, when Jesus invites all who are uh, poor and heavy laden, all who are labor and heavy laden, This is not merely an invitation to people who are trying to chart their own way to salvation. It is. But it's also an invitation for us who labor, who work, who have a disordered relationship with rest or a disordered relationship with work, to rest in Christ. 
He's speaking to everyone who is trying to fill their empty soul. And it's possible in Christ because through Christ we have that relationship with God repaired. It's restored. Suddenly, um, because of Christ, that monster that lurks in the back of my mind, that constant buzzing that says your job is what makes you valuable, is just a buzz. It's always there because of, you know, sin. But it's not the main thing anymore. Now, it, it, now, uh, and I can't, like, I can tell you this all day long, but until you experience it, you're not going to believe it. There, there are moments in my job where I feel this stress and pressure to provide, this stress and pressure to perform, to define myself through my work. And as soon as I hear that voice, there's another one that immediately chimes in and says that you rest in Christ's work, not yours. That I am an adopted son of God. That I was so loved that God sent his son to die for my sins. It's an automatic thing. I can't explain it. In the book Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf explain the impact of realizing what Jesus offers. Instead of working tirelessly to cure acedia, which is born of selfishness, you're working out of true passion, which is born out of selflessness. You are adopted into God's family, so you, are all, so you already have your affirmation. You are justified in God's sight, so you have nothing to prove. You have been saved through the dying sacrifice of Christ, so you are free to be a living sacrifice. You are loved ceaselessly so you can work tirelessly in response to a quiet inner fullness. Whether you're a Christian or not, chances are pretty high that you have felt the weight of an empty soul. For want of purpose, you fill your life with excess work, excess study, excess relaxation, excess something in an attempt to feel fulfilled. But Jesus invites you to lay down the burden of trying to satisfy the yearnings of your soul and let him be your rest. In Christ, our relationship with work and rest are both transformed. Jesus is the true Sabbath rest that your soul craves. And work becomes something new. It's not a burden. It's not evil. It becomes an expression of worship and an expression of obedience. As the band comes back up uh, to start their next song, um, what I would ask you to do this week with this information is to take a look at your relationship to work and your relationship to rest. Why do you seek either of those things? Is it maybe because you're giving into this temptation to fill the emptiness, this fruitless effort? If you're a Christian, specifically, I would ask, how does your faith impact the way you do your work? 
What do you think it looks like to be a good Christian in the office place? What should it look like? And see what might be different about your work in light of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning praising you, I hope, praising you for the rest that you've made available to us. That though we are broken and sinful, though our relationship to you has been disordered and severed, that you had compassion on us in our weakness and in our oppression to sin to fix that relationship through Christ. I pray that that everyone here this morning would be able to feel the satisfaction that comes from being fully known and fully loved by Christ and fully resting in his work. I pray that for those of us who are Christians, God, that that this would be the beginning of a journey to change the way we work, to change the way we rest, so that we might, in a truer sense, live by the design and the purpose that you have given us as your image bearers. For those who are here this morning that, that maybe don't know if they're saved or maybe just aren't at all, and they're certain of that, I pray that they would consider what your word says about the design of work, about its intent, about its potential. But most of all, God, that they would consider this week the beautiful gift of the cross and the rest that it offers. In Christ's name we pray.